0: blessing to be here this morning. You know, a a couple of years ago, I wasn't really in a great place. Um, I remember a day where I was laying on the floor of my bedroom, and I was just unraveled. I, I was struggling so much to even know if I could trust that God was good. I mean, I was up in Boston serving as a summer missionary, and so I'm supposed to be out sharing the gospel. I'm supposed to be out showing other people how good God is, and yet there I was, myself, struggling to serve him well because I was struggling to believe that God was good. You know, I, I grew up in a good biblical church. I grew up here. I've sat in that seat for like a thousand sermons. I know that God is good. And yet there I was, years into my faith, really struggling. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think everybody has those struggles. In fact, I think we can trace it back pretty far. I know a couple, a married couple, they lived in a garden, and they really struggled to believe that God was good too. Right When Adam and Eve were tempted to sin, when they were tempted to disobey God, it was on the basis that they didn't trust in that moment that God was good. They didn't believe it. So I bring up my story and the story of Adam and Eve this morning because we have to have God's goodness as our firm foundation. I love that song that we just sang. It is, it is so good and, and so true to know that Christ does not change. And even though the rain will come and the winds will blow, we can stand firm on the character of Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to go ahead and give you the spoiler. I'm going to tell you where we're going to get to, how the plane's going to land, and that is that we are going to be a people who can know that God is good and that, as John and Kaylee read for us, that we will be able to discern what God's will is knowing and believing more and more that it is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we approach this passage this morning, I think Paul does a great job of of answering four different questions that help us get to that point. And these four questions are all wrapped up in the idea of a living sacrifice, which we'll unpack more and more. Here are the four questions that we're going to answer this morning along with Paul. Why? Why? Why do we present our bodies as living sacrifices? Why has Paul commanded us to do that? What does it mean to present our bodies as living sacrifices? And how do we do that? Right, we need to do it, but how do we do it? And finally, what happens when we present ourselves as living sacrifices? What is the end result? And so let's go ahead and start with our first point this morning, which is answering the question of, why we should present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Paul starts off in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. By the mercies of God. See, that word, therefore, it is a connector. It's a huge bridge connecting us all the way from Romans 1 through 11, which we've been studying in here for eight months, (laughs) and connecting it to Romans 12 through 16 through the rest of the book. Paul's making this shift from the right belief about what God has done and who he is into now what we need to do as a result. Paul has been outlining for 11 chapters the gospel. He's been explaining the good news that Jesus has come down to earth in the flesh to save humanity from our sin. We are all guilty before God because we have rebelled against him, and yet the best news in the entire universe is that God did not leave us to die. He came to rescue us. And so as Paul has been outlining just the depths of the gospel, we get to where we were a couple of weeks ago, at the end of Romans chapter 11, where Paul, he's, the the analogy, right, he's been hiking a mountain, and he gets to the top of the mountain, and he's been climbing up and explaining all this stuff about God, and he gets to the top, and he looks out over the mountains, just like we do out in the Smokies, and he looks out and goes, oh my gosh, the depths of God. Right? He says in chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. All he can do is worship. So what we find is that as we transition here into chapter 12, Paul commands us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, but why? Because of God's mercy. God's mercy is how Paul sums up 11 chapters. That is Romans. It is the mercy of God on display. We present ourselves not to earn the mercy of God, but because of God's mercy. The, uh, the example that comes to mind for me with this, it's like if you, if you got saved out of a burning building, whatever you do in response as gratitude to the person that pulled you out, that's not to get them to pull you out of the burning building. That's already happened. Now this is your response. And in the same way, that is what Paul outlines. It is because of God's unbelievable, unfathomable goodness that we present ourselves It's the best way to live. And then he explains what it means to be a living sacrifice. As he continues in verse one, he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you'll notice this passage, it's it's filled with all sorts of sacrifice language. Right? Paul's writing against the backdrop of the Jewish Old Testament. He's writing to a group of people who are intimately familiar with this idea of animal sacrifice. God had instituted a temporary structure where the blood of goats and bulls was seen as a temporary atonement for sin. The point is, it was going to reveal to the Jews just how sinful they were. It was going to show them that their sin was so serious that it required blood to be shed. It caused death and corruption. And they would see through the continual giving of sacrifices year in and year out that they needed a better sacrifice. They needed a sacrifice that would come once and for all and truly take away our debt before God as a result of our sin. And friends, that's Jesus. And so now, in light of all of this, in light of the gospel, Paul's outlining what it means for us to be a living sacrifice. He's using all of this sacrificial language to say that where it used to be this structure where you would go and take an animal and you would bring it to the temple and you would present it to the priest and, and the animal had to be perfect and without blemishes. And they'd give it to the priest and the priest would sacrifice it onto the altar and then the aroma of it would go up to God and be pleasing. Problem is, people abused this system. Right? They, they treated it as almost like this paper sin thing where they're like, okay, cool, like, this sin will cost me a couple of goats. I can live with that. And, and their heart wasn't in it. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see that God was not happy with those sacrifices. And we find out why here because he wants us. He doesn't just want what we can give him. Romans 11, right at the end of that, it was really clear who can give him a gift that he might need to repay him. There's nothing that we can give God that he needs. But what he really wants is us. He wants us to present our bodies, our whole selves in worship to him. This means not to be in church 24-7, right, inside of the four walls of this building. No, it means that as we brush our teeth and cook dinner and go about our jobs and hang out with our friends, that as we do each one of those things, that it would be a life in service to God. It is that our bodies are now the living sacrifice. We are not dead on an altar. We are moving around and living on this earth, but the way we live is a pleasing aroma to the Lord when we are obedient to Him, it's all worship. All right, sometimes we think that worship is just the singing that we do before and after the sermon. That's not, that, that's, that's a piece of it, but that is not all of what worship is doing. What I love, what, what Dan and Amy and the team so faithfully do week in and week out, they are discipling us, they are teaching us and leading us to vocally express through music, what should be the condition of our hearts and bodies 24-7. Through music, we are showing God that this is how we are living. Unashamed, wholehearted devotion to God. So a little side note for you. If you're ever wondering how you're doing at worshiping God, if you're ever kind of questioning that, I'd encourage you to look at how you're worshiping on Sunday mornings. The way that you sing when you come in here, the way that you prepare your hearts to worship, that might be indicative of how you are living your life. And we're all worshiping throughout our week. We're all worshiping something. Even the, even the most secular person that claims to not be religious, they are worshiping something. Because to worship, it's just to ascribe weight to something in your life, to ascribe glory to it. Think about it like this, Uh, you know, we're in Knoxville, every fall, when we order our entire Saturday schedules around fall football and then throughout our weeks as we have conversations about it, the way we dress reflects UT Orange, we can't wear Alabama colors during the Tennessee Bama week, right? We watch ESPN to see what the games are supposed to be, what what analysts are saying. We talk to our friends, all this stuff. Guys, that's worship. That is worship. That is ascribing weight to something in your life. And what scripture says here, what scripture says so clearly, is that to ascribe weight to anything other than God as ultimate in your life, that's foolishness. That's foolishness. And we know that through what Paul says when he says that it is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual, in the Greek, it's logikos. has the idea this is your logical, your reasonable, your rational service to God. The point that he's making that that one pastor said really well is simply this, the Christian life is the most rational life that a human being can live. In light of the mercies of God, in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus coming down to earth to die on a cross and be raised to new life for us, it's foolishness to live for anything else. It's what we were made for, guys. I like how a first century philosopher said it a couple thousand years ago said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, I'd do what's proper to a swan. In fact, I am logikos. I'm a rational being. So I must praise God. That's what being a living sacrifice is. It's to present your whole self day in and day out in whatever you do for the glory of God in devotion to him. But How do we do that practically? Right? That, that seems kind of like a, a pie-in-the-sky idea, but what are we supposed to do? And thankfully, Paul answers that here in the next verse. So as we go into our third question, how? How do we present our bodies to God as living sacrifices? And the answer is this principle in the beginning of verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We become living sacrifices through formation. But there's two types of formation that are clear in this passage, right? One is conformity to the world, and one is transformation, right? One is a deformation, It is a de-creation from what you were intended to be into the mold of the world as it is shaping you. And the other, transformation, that is to be, that, that is metamorphosis into exactly who you were created to be as a human. It's all about formation. Our lives are about formation. None of us are neutral. Every single one of us is being formed day by day. We're being discipled by everything around us. And as Jake loves to say, this world, it's a formation machine. It's a formation machine. And there's a war going on between who wants to form us. God, he wants to form us through Jesus. He wants to form us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He wants to form us through the Bible. He wants to form us through Christian community as a bunch of messy sinners come together and do life together. That's how God wants to form us. And then there's the world. And the world, it's not just like the physical earth. Uh, I like how Douglas Moo describes it. It's talking about this present age. He says, this is the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which all people, included in Adam's fall, naturally belong. So you've got God trying to form us in this world, the sin-dominated, death-producing realm, in which all people, included in Adam's fall, naturally belong. The world is trying to conform you trying to conform you. I think about it like this. Uh, If you've ever been in a larger airport, there's those like flat escalator things that take you from terminal to terminal. I know that there's a technical term for it. It's not called flat escalator things. So I looked it up this week. Apparently it's called a travelator, but Al and Joe both call them people movers, and I like that a little bit more. So we're going to call it a people mover. Imagine it like this. All humans, all people are on one giant people-mover. And on one end is transformation, and on the other end is conformity. On one end is Christ, and the other end is evil and the world. Problem is, because of our sin, we are all naturally moving in the direction of conformity. The people-mover is moving towards conformity, and we are facing that direction. On our own power, that's all we can do. It's all we can do. It is only through salvation. It is only through God's gracious rescuing of us that we can turn around and even face the other direction. We do not have the power on our own to turn around and go towards transformation. Behavior modification alone cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. So we have to, to choose transformation. We actively have to choose it because, if you'll notice, when you turn around, the people mover is still moving in that direction. Right? So now you're facing resistance. Now it becomes hard. It's not easy to live the way that God has asked us to because the world is trying to conform us. So we have to actively reject The conformity of this present age and choose transformation instead. How does this transformation happen? How do we choose it? Paul says it is through the renewal of our minds. It's through the renewal of our minds. Scripture got it right way before modern neuroscience ever realized this. Our brains are like clay, our brains can actually be changed. We can change the way that we think over time. It's this concept of neuroplasticity where like if you think about something enough, you are going to think like that. And so the way that we are transformed to look more like Jesus is through our very minds being changed as we think and meditate on God and the gospel and scripture more and more. For our minds to be changed, our thinking has to be changed. And for our thinking to be changed, we have to think about the right things. Have to think about the right things. And so, as we present ourselves day in and day out to God in worship, as we get on this metaphorical altar, we are declaring with our lives that we believe who God says he is and that he's done what he said he's done. We were talking about this in our community group on Thursday. The idea is that there's a deepening spiral here. The more your mind is renewed, the more you believe the gospel. And the more you believe the gospel, the more you are transformed. It is a deepening process more and more by which the older you get, as you mature in Christ, you should see yourself being formed more and more into the image of Christ. When we truly believe the gospel... Of Romans 1 through 11, and live our lives in a worshipful response, our minds will be transformed. If you believe a lie long enough, you'll live them out. But if you believe the truth, it'll set you free and it will change you. <laughs> but here's where we have to get careful. Here's where things start to seem a little complicated. Everything's formation, right? It's what we've already established. So how do you just always choose transformation instead of conformity? The problem is, so many of us, we're living lives where we're settling for a little bit of both. The thing is, it's it's great if we start our day with an hour of being with the Lord, reading scripture, and praying. I love it. I recommend it to everybody. (laughs) Spend time with Jesus. That hour is great. It's discipling you. But I saw this week that the the average American spends seven hours and four minutes a day on their phone. We're foolish if we think that that's not discipling us as well. The way that we're thinking is being transformed by our time in the word. We're coming to believe what God says about us. But then we get on Facebook. We listen to our favorite political commentators. We watch sports. We watch our favorite TV shows. We listen to music. And all of this stuff is trying to get us to think a certain way as well. And if we're spending seven hours a day there, that might just be undoing everything that we're doing. So Christian, if you're in here today and you feel weary because you don't feel like there's progress in your life, I'd I'd encourage you to look at what are the things that are forming you? What are the things that are conforming you to the image of the world? It's like we're going to the gym in the morning. Right, we're working out for 30 minutes, and then we go home and we sit on the couch for the entire rest of the day and gorge ourselves with junk food. (laughs) We're undoing everything that we just did. It's it's great that you went to the gym, but you've just lost that progress. Here's what's, what's really important for us to grasp, though. The solution, it's not to spend 24 hours a day in the gym. It's just that as you live your life, don't undo all of the things that you just did. So in the same way, I'm not prescribing that the solution is that we sit in here 24-7 all week long and only sing worship songs and listen to sermons all day, every day, reading our Bible 10 hours a day. That's not how God has intended us to live. Our, Our bodies are supposed to be living sacrifices. The important thing is that as we live, we're not undoing all of the transformation through conformity. We have to ask ourselves these questions as we're watching TV shows and movies and listening to music and hanging out with people around us. We have to be smart enough and wise enough to ask the question, what is this forming me to be? I'll give you an example. Uh, First of all, I don't think that social media is all bad, but I'm going to use this here in a negative sense. So is social media making you, is it forming you to be a more kind and charitable person? Is it forming you to be more selfless and humble, more joyful as you look at the things happening in other people's lives, or is it forming in you jealousy? Is it forming in you an unhealthy pride to keep up a certain appearance? Is it forming in you hatred towards people that disagree with you who you can argue with in a comment section? We have to ask ourselves these questions. What is this forming me to be? But we can't just ask the question ourselves and, and try to answer it because our minds, as they're continued to be transformed, we still have this residue of sin within us that wants to fight against that transformation. We will ultimately lie to ourselves and, and try to cling to sin. That's why we need to have community around us. We need to have people in our lives that can bring these things to light and say, hey, brother, sister, I think that this thing is not good for us. We need to be able to have those conversations. We need to be formed by Scripture. And so Paul is saying that to live the Christian life, to be a living sacrifice to God, it is to actively choose to not be conformed to this world that is passing away but to choose transformation instead. You play a huge part in your own sanctification. You play a huge part in your formation. What will you choose? What will you choose? That's three out of the four questions. We've covered why we should present ourselves as sacrifices. It's because of who God is and what God has done. We've said that to be a living sacrifice, it is to live our lives in whole devotion to God in all things that we do, living for his glory and not our own. We do this through choosing transformation instead of conformity. We do this by having our minds renewed more and more. But what happens when we do all this? This is where I said we were going to land the plane at the beginning, Paul ends these verses by saying that after we, as we do not be conformed but, but be transformed, he concludes by telling us that by testing, we might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, that summer that I was in Boston and I was really struggling, under the surface, kind of the roots of the tree, it was that I was really struggling with knowing whether or not God was good, knowing whether or not I could even trust him. The way that that was manifesting itself out in my daily life, kind of the the fruit coming out of that tree, it was that I was wrestling with God's will. If you know me or my story, you know that I was agonizing for years over what exactly God wanted me to do for a career and where he wanted me to do it, and it was plaguing me trying to figure out exactly what God wanted me to do. And what I've come to learn from that season of life is that I think everybody wrestles with God's will. I think everybody does. Christians that are around my age, right, we we wrestle with those questions of, what do I need to do with my life? What career path should I take? Where should I live? I can live anywhere. Who should I marry, if anyone? We ask all these questions. Middle-aged Christians, they're they're asking this question of, you know, how do I navigate my relationships and and my marriage, right? If I have kids, what's going on with my kids? How can I raise them to, to be good? How can I raise them in the image of Christ? What am I doing? At least that's what I hear. I don't have kids. they're asking these questions of, should life really be like this? It's so different than what I expected 10, 20, 30 years ago. Am I doing this right? And finally, as we get to the the older senior Christians, they're asking these questions about God's will. God, what do you want from me in this season of life? I can't do the things that I used to do. What should these years look like? How can I serve you? But this isn't just limited to Christians. I think every single person, every unbeliever, every person who does not follow Jesus is wrestling with God's will. They ask all of the exact same questions, they just don't put God and his name on it, right? Have you ever been to a Barnes and Nobles recently? The self-help, self-transformation section, it is this ever-growing shrine to people trying to answer the questions of what do I do with my life? What am I here for? Why do I exist? And how can I be happy? How can I be the most fulfilled? What is my meaning and purpose? And the promise of scripture is that there's an answer to all of these questions. We can know what God's will is Guys, how amazing is that? Take a second, think how big God is. How infinitely greater he is than us. And yet, he is knowable. And he makes his plans and desires and will for us knowable. In a, in a macro sense, his will is that we would worship him. right? It's that we would come to him and be his children and gloriously share with Christ as heirs of future Glory. That's his will for every one of us. But in a more day to day sense, which is what this passage is talking about, Paul makes it clear that through this process of transformation, we will be able to discern more and more what God's will is in the everyday situations of life. The caveat is that I'm not saying that if you read your Bible enough, you'll wake up and God will give you a to do list of everything you're supposed to do that day. Because we're not robots. And God has no desire to have an impersonal relationship with us where he's just a taskmaster. God wants us to be in a personal relationship with him. When I was growing up, my dad and I would always have this conversation where, about chores. Where his, the, the big thing that always bugged him was that he didn't want to have to tell us every single time the trash needed to get taken out or to put a dish into the dishwasher and not the sink. He just wanted me to know that it needed to be done and do it. It's not that hard. But I didn't see with his eyes. I don't care about dirty dishes in the sink. I'm 12 or 18, you know. (laughs) Or 22. I still leave dishes in the sink. I didn't care because I didn't see with his eyes. In reality, as I was in a relationship with him, as I come to know him more and more and become more like him, I would see with his eyes. I would see what he wants me to do. And and so in the same way, a Christian who is maturing into a personal relationship with God where they are looking more and more like Christ, as you go about your life, you will know more and more what God wants you to do with your life, both in the large things and in the day to day. But finally, what's the end of all of this? What's the end of the people mover? I said it's going somewhere. So as we all sit here today, all of us living and breathing, the end of formation, the end result, is that you will either look like the God and King of the universe or you will look like the world and people who crucified the God and King of the universe. Those are your two options. That's it. That's all that Scripture gives you, and if you think that that's harsh, it's just reality. You might think that somewhere in that middle ground's okay. Oh, I don't follow Jesus, but I don't hate him. I'm just indifferent. It doesn't matter to me. You're on a people mover. You are on the path of conformity. And that path ends in an eternity separated from God. Not because he's just this punitive God who wants to punish you, but because you don't want him. You didn't want to be forgiven. He is freely at the door, knocking. And we can come to him. But the end of conformity... It's hell. And you cannot stop the formation of hell within you on your own. Like I said earlier, behavior modification can't save you. All of the good deeds in your world, I I think it's Jonathan Edwards that said it like this, all of your good deeds can keep you out of hell as much as a spider web can stop a falling boulder. Your good deeds can't save you. Jesus alone can save you. There's truth to the old saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? The idea that the more you reject Jesus day by day, the more that you harden your hearts to his gospel, to his saving grace, his hand of mercy, you are becoming increasingly hardened to God, to the point that a few weeks ago, I think Sam said it, if you keep saying, I will not come to you, Jesus, I will not come, I will not, I will not, I will not, eventually that will not is going to turn into a cannot. You won't be able to because you will have been hardened into the mold of this world. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, guys, what a joy it is that we get to spend our lives looking more and more like Jesus. What's better than that? I love baseball, and my, my favorite baseball player is Mike Trout. Right? And growing up, I would want to swing like him, stand in the box and practice his stance, try to field fly balls the way that he did. You you try to want to wear eye black the way that your sports heroes do, right? In the 90s, there's the Be Like Mike commercials for the NBA. We want to be like the people that we honor and respect and give weight to, the people that we worship. How much better is Jesus than a baseball player? The end result of formation for the believer is that we will look more and more like Jesus. And as we come face to face with him, we will be wrapped up into the arms of his loving embrace. He will wipe away every tear of every hardship. He knows the pain that we have gone through resisting This conformity to the world. What a joy that will be. So this whole sermon, it's a sermon full of applications. The whole thing is literally an application of what we have been preaching through for eight months. But I'm gonna give you one more just for fun. Let me close with this. Run after Jesus. Run after Jesus. If you're in here this morning and you don't follow Jesus with your life, run after him. Run after him. I hope that you'll see this morning through scripture that he is the only one worthy of the weight of worship in our lives. We all worship something as ultimate and a moon cannot handle the pressure of being at the center of the solar system. Only the sun can handle it. This morning... Bow your knee to Him. Don't harden your hearts today. Hear His voice calling through Scripture. And be made new into His image. And for the believers in this room, the call is the same for you. Run after Jesus. Run after Jesus. There is nothing else that is worth it. Nothing. Don't settle for a faith that's a little bit of conformity, and a little bit of transformation. Don't settle for just kind of sitting on the people mover in the middle as much as possible. No. With wholehearted devotion, as it says in Hebrews 12, cast aside the sin and weights that cling to us closely and run the race. And that race is to run after Jesus. Choose transformation and life each and every day not conformity or death. On Friday, uh, Tim Keller, very well-known Christian pastor, one of the more influential Christians maybe the last hundred years. He passed away of pancreatic cancer that he had been battling for three years. His son tweeted out some of his final words. I want to share them with us this morning. I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Friends, those are the words of somebody who has been transformed to the image of Christ. Somebody who has their mind renewed. Let's let that be the posture of all of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are holy, you are good, and your will is good. What you desire for us is good. We can never thank you enough for your salvation, God. The fact that you have come to rescue us from our sin. God, we thank you for that. I pray that in response to that, not in order to earn it because we could never earn it, but in response to that, Lord, would we be a church, a people, who present ourselves to you day in and day out as living sacrifices? Would our lives be pleasing aromas to you that you would look on us in delight, seeing the image of Christ shining through us more and more? God, help us, give us the strength to choose transformation, to choose to reject the conformity of the world. It's hard. I pray that we would not be overly burdened, worrying about literally every single moment of our lives, God, but that through your word, communion with you in prayer, through Christian community, God, would you give us the wisdom and discernment to see what is good and what is not good that we would choose transformation instead. God, I pray that all of us would stand in awe of your goodness, never questioning it, fully assured that you are who you say you are. This morning we worship you and we pray that this song right now would just be a moment, a snapshot of what all of our lives are like. It's in your name we pray, amen.